Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. I'm Alan Hunter with our Defined Contribution Institutional Team, and with me today are Dan Oldroyd, Portfolio Manager and Head of Targeted Strategies for our Multi-Asset Solutions Group, and Hal Bjornsson, Client Portfolio Manager, also with Multi-Asset Solutions. Both are with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Today's episode is entitled, Automate, Uncomplicate, and Activate, Helping Improve Participants' Retirement Outcomes, and is for professional and institutional investors. Many participants will certainly be pleased with the year-to-date balances on their retirement plan statements, but the outlook for market returns over the next 10 to 15 years remains less than inspiring. Participants face an undiminished challenge with both modest global economic growth estimates and long-term return outlooks for many major asset classes lower than where they were last year. Today's episode will explore the paper written by our multi-asset solutions group entitled Helping Improve Participant Retirement Outcomes, Three Practical Steps Still Apply, which explores the implications of our 2018 long-term capital market assumptions for DC plans. It also looks at some practical approaches to the challenges plan sponsors and participants face. Dan, Hal, welcome to Insights. Thank you for having us. Thrilled to be here. Honing in on the long-term capital market assumption growth forecast, the 2018 report assumption is modest global economic growth over the next 10 to 15 years, which is pretty much unchanged from recent years, where we've seen this sort of prolonged series of downgrades to trend growth. Dan and Hal, can you walk us through to high level J.P. Morgan's long-term outlook for some of the major asset classes we find in D.C. portfolios? And is there anything on the horizon that could change this constrained pattern of growth? As you mentioned, Alan, the forecast for 2018 hasn't really changed from 2017 with the idea that GDP estimates are approximately 1.5% for developed markets. If you look at emerging markets, we're looking at GDP growth of around 4.5%. Interest rates are rising, but a very modest pace. Our return expectations for equities have come down some where you're looking at developed market equity returns somewhere in the 5% range or so. There are bright spots, emerging markets, high yield, that will provide for some additional return potential. But overall, it is a continued modest pace of growth and concomitantly return expectations coming down. And then just thinking through, there's actually some upside potential, which is rare when you sort of think about these, and it's the role of technology. And there is potential for a tech-driven boost to productivity, which creates some upside here. It's hard to measure that in real time, but what we think we're seeing is a next wave of technology, not just the sector, but how it's applied throughout what you might call the real aspects of the economy and industry. Dan, moving from outlook to impact, what are some of the investment implications of this long-term outlook for planned participants? In an overall portfolio context, if we break down the 2018 long-term capital market assumptions and create a 60-40 portfolio, so 60% equities, 40% fixed income, that would be a reasonable proxy for the average asset allocation for a typical participant over their lifespan. What you're seeing is what was last year, a a 5.5% expected return, is down slightly to 5.25%. So you describe in your paper three ways that plan sponsors can help participants reach their retirement goals. And I think that's particularly important given this historically low return environment and the outlook that we have that we just described. First, encourage greater savings. Two, make diversification easier. And three, employ active management. Let's take these one at a time. 
First, encourage greater savings, something that's far more easily said than done, but it's particularly important in a low-return world. How can you talk for just a minute about some of the tools that plan sponsors have that can help encourage participants to save? It's automatic. That's where plan sponsors have to go in this environment if we're going to encourage greater savings. There's been lots of stuff in the media lately. The press has talked about the behavioral characteristics and how inertia can work for people. Auto-enrolling participants in a 401k plan, auto-increasing has proven to be very, very effective when you look at the stats and how many people actually stay with it and the results in terms of savings rates. It really is about automating and making it easy for people to not even have to think about saving for retirement. The interesting thing about the automating aspect is I think sometimes there's a perception. There's some pushback from participants. And we've done a lot of research around this, both at the plan sponsor level, at the participant level. And most people are favorable to neutral on being automatically enrolled and having their contributions automatically escalated. Automatic enrollment, automatic escalation, anything else that plan sponsors can use. How? Re-enrollment. Think about it from the perspective of employees have been in a 401k plan for a while. Prior to auto-enrollment and auto-increase being elected to be used for new participants in a plan, you have a whole host of folks that may not have benefited from the ability to have an automated program for them. And re-enrolling lets you capture the number of participants that may not be properly allocated. And how I think was the interesting thing, I think everyone has seen these charts, but if you plot a plan, take all the participants in a plan, and if you were to plot their age and their percent of equity, and it would look like you just dropped a bag of marbles on, on a page. It is all over the place. So for most plans, they could benefit from a reset, if you will, on the asset allocation of the plan. In fact, if you think about it as a fiduciary, I've helped participants who are new to my plan by automating things and automatically defaulting them where they didn't want to make an active decision. And I haven't done that for people that were in the plan earlier. So auto features sound like a no-brainer. How widespread today is the adoption of some of these auto features? So about half in terms of you just sort of broadly said automatic features. Within that, you have automatic enrollment, and that's closer to 60, 65% of sponsors using automatic enrollment. And then about half of 50% of sponsors using automatic escalation. Now, the thing with automatic enrollment is you go into the plan at a certain level, and escalation would be, say, if you go into 3%, you go from 3% after a year, you go to 4%, all the way up to you know, four, five, six percent. I think the change now, as opposed to a couple years ago, is you're starting to see a greater emphasis on getting to the right level. So not just stopping at six percent, but getting up to 10, 11, 12 percent. This is, I think, been one of the success stories in the DC market where you've seen just greater embracing of the automatic features. Let's turn our attention to the second point, making diversification easier. We just talked quite a bit about the lower turn environment we've been in, the diminished outlook going forward. Where are you seeing opportunities for diversification for DC participants? I think when we talk about diversification and making it easier, we have to couch it in the right terms. It's not about giving more options within an investment menu. I think researchers would agree that the more choice you give in an investment menu, it tends to be detrimental. People have a difficult time building those in, or if you add an investment option to an investment menu, it gets less than 1% of the asset allocation. So what we're really talking about here would be more 
in terms of the default investment, your target date fund, your balanced fund. And you're trying to make portfolio diversification easier by embracing asset classes that you typically don't see in portfolios and moving towards asset classes that offer some more potential in terms of risk, return, and diversification. So Hal mentioned earlier, making sure that you include some credit in your portfolios in the fixed income space, not just a Barclays aggregate portfolio or not just treasuries into your portfolio. You want to expand the opportunity set. The same goes to equities. With the way the long-term capital market assumptions are playing out, you want to be a little bit more globally oriented and a less U.S.-centric. And to your point, Dan, when you look at what the opportunity set is, a lot of our competitors tend to be U.S.-centric, which has certainly worked very well over the years. But as we look at our long-term capital market assumptions on a go-forward basis, there are a lot of opportunities that are important to be able to access outside of the U.S. And that's just the point, right? If you look at the last five, six years, it's been all about U.S. equity. And you don't drive looking in the rearview mirror, right. right? And everyone's sort of heard that tired expression. But it's important to understand where potential returns are coming from as opposed to where they've been in this regard. And to your point, this isn't about adding in a core menu more options for people where they may not have the time, attention, or expertise to figure out what their allocation should be. It's offering things that are diversified from an asset allocation perspective, like a target date fund as a QDIA, that provide for that diversification. As we have this conversation around diversification, it's a little more natural for us as professionals, as asset managers, to discuss what that means or understand what that means. But something I think it's worth talking about is that participants, and we hear this time and again for participants, don't often feel like they have the ability to diversify, that the knowledge, the expertise. Can you talk for a minute, Hal, about, again, what tools plan sponsors have to help participants diversify? Well, it does get back to having a qualified default investment alternative where you can default people into a strategic asset allocation that is diversified. We've seen, and this gets back to Dan's point earlier, if you look historically at how 401k menus have evolved over time, we've seen that they went from having very few options early on in the life of 401k plans to today, you have 62% on average of plans have target date funds. So it's really about embracing the opportunity to put something in the plan menu that automatically diversifies participants beyond where they were. So there's certainly a handful of things that sponsors can do to help participants diversify. Dan, can you talk for just a minute about what has the experience been like for participants and sponsors so far with some of these features? Sure. And Hal mentioned 60 62% of plans are using target date funds I think that number might actually be a little bit low. You generally see it's become a very common approach here. Remember what a target date fund does. A target date fund is a vehicle that gets you into the plan to keep you diversified and to keep you invested over time. And so if we think about the experience that participants have had in target date funds, it's generally been really positive. I believe last year, Morningstar released a study and, and looked at something called the investor returns. And investor returns basically just takes a look at, you might have the return of a fund or an asset class, but that doesn't take into consideration the cash flows that go on. And so investor returns solves for that. And what you see in a lot of different fund categories is people chase returns or people sell at the wrong time. And generally, you have a negative investor return for lots of investment options, say, in a DC menu. In the target date space, actually, it's the opposite. 
you generally have seen participants have a really good experience because they have positive investor returns, which means is they're using them the right way. They're not trying to trade out of them. They are staying the course. They are following their contribution paths. And if they can do that over a long period of time, that's going to increase the odds for increased success at retirement. I want to stay on the topic of target date funds. As we have this conversation around our long-term capital market assumptions heading into next year, how does that play into managing target date fund glide paths and managing target date funds more generally? And how important is it to have that kind of comprehensive, consistent long-term outlook across asset classes? The importance of long-term capital market assumptions and the way you might use them is if you just take a step back. For a target date fund, you need to invest for 40, perhaps 50, 60 years. And so following a process and having a target is important. And we define, you know, for us, success is getting as many people to the retirement finish line safely. And having a long-term approach and a way that we can have check-ins along the way. So each year, we're kicking the tires on the long-term capital market assumptions. Make sure that we're not deviating too far from that target over time. That's one of the things that helps us stick to our discipline, and it's one of the things that helps us keep invested for our participants and our clients. Dan, you spoke a moment ago about the importance of diversification within specific asset classes, things like introducing credit into fixed income allocations, taking maybe a little more of a global approach to equities. Hal, can you talk a little more about that or expand on that? What kind of opportunities are you seeing for diversification within these asset classes, and why is that so important for participants? Well, I think one of the asset classes that folks need to pay attention to is on the fixed income side. We mentioned credit having opportunities. And if you just consider the construction of the Barclays Aggregate Index and that being the go-to index that a lot of people will use when they're allocating to fixed income. It is typically, if you're indexing a portfolio, you're going to allocate money to the ag. So when you look at the construction of the Barclays Aggregate Index, there's a couple things to consider, actually two or three things. One, the percentage of the aggregate index that is treasuries today is approximately 38%. And if we take a look at periods where interest rates are rising, treasuries have the most sensitivity to a rise in interest rates. Moreover, as the Fed continues to change its approach to what's happening with the interest rate outlook, that will likely increase the percentage of the ag that actually is in treasuries. The other thing to consider is that, one, I have a percentage of that index that's now has a higher allocation of treasuries than it had historically, therefore more exposure to change in rates. Second of all, if you think about the credit component or the corporate bonds in that index, they have a higher allocation to triple B names, and that too is a consideration as we look at tax changes and the impact that could have on some of these lower quality credits. And then third, and I don't think some people realize this, when you look at the Barclays Aggregate Index, it is comprised of the issuers that have the most debt outstanding, and it's not market cap weighted. So what does that all mean? It means that you need to be looking at, first of all, being active in fixed income, and secondly, moving beyond a core index strategy. And then importantly, we are expecting interest rates to rise. So if we're expecting rates to go up as the Fed changes policy coming into 2018 and longer, that will have an impact on people investing in something like an aggregate index. So then if you think carefully about the decisions that you make in allocating among fixed income opportunities, going passive is actually an active decision. 
That's absolutely right, Hal. And just take a step back for a second. We're at a really interesting inflection point in the economy globally and in markets. And I think where you're going to see a good amount of action is, is in the fixed income space. Central banks, at least the Fed in the U.S., have stopped easing. You're seeing a slowdown in pace. You're going to start to see the impacts and the ripple effects of less coordinated central bank policy. And that's all going to play out in the fixed income markets over the next few years. So to your point, you might want to think twice before being passive in the fixed income space. I certainly would. I would want to have a little bit more tools in the toolkit as I thought about building a portfolio, particularly in the fixed income markets right now. I think that's a really good segue into the last point we make in the paper, which is employing active management. The long-term capital market assumptions are essentially beta or market forecasts. They don't include alpha, which is simply the part of return that comes from a portfolio manager's skill. Dan, how do you view the importance of alpha, this active component of returns, over the next, say, 10 to 15 years? Well, so for everyone who's listening along, I think that will sound like a little bit of a broken record. One, there's no such thing as a passive approach to asset allocation. So it's all active. That's a really important thing to remember. Two, to go back to returns just coming down over time. And as you think about it, if you can add 25, 50, 75 basis points of returns, that's just a larger percentage of your overall return. So to ignore that in this type of environment, I think is a tough thing to very specifically go out and do. So Dan, as you mentioned, when you're looking at alpha generating 50, 75 basis points of return, if you think about, again, trying to help people as they save for retirement over 40, 50 years, that can have a meaningful impact when you start to compound that alpha contribution. And how it just sort of struck me is we build these glide paths on a beta basis, but there's sort of two other ways that you would add value in a quote-unquote active space, which is, are you going to use active underlying managers? And are you going to make any active asset allocation or tactical decisions around the glide path? Generally, what we see is there's room for active in certain asset classes. Certain asset classes are very efficient. Take U.S. equities, for example, right? Everyone knows what the S&P 500 is. There's trillions of dollars tracking it. You can purchase that exposure for very low cost. So many plans have an S&P 500 index option in the plan. Many target date funds will index that approach. But in certain areas, we talked at length about fixed income. Let's transition over to the equity side. You could take a look at, say, emerging markets equity. And you have different regions experiencing different types of growth. They have different exposures. I think about sort of a commodity-intensive Latin America versus a very tech-driven Asia, for example. So you have to make decisions on regions, and you have to make decisions on countries, and just sort of following the market cap might not be the best thing. Additionally, liquidity is important, right? Being understand that you might not want to get into certain markets. So there's, I think, a level of risk control that some active managers could potentially bring into those asset classes. And the same goes for some others, and we mentioned those earlier, like the fixed income. But in particular, what I was thinking of is House comment on fixed income indices are debt-weighted, not market cap-weighted. Right. You don't want to lend 
more money to the people who need it the most, right? There's an issue there you want to try to avoid. And just along those same lines, and not to get back to fixed income once again, but think about high yield. If we're talking about credit, high yield offering opportunities on a go-forward basis, that's certainly an area where active management has historically played a very important role in terms of picking credits and looking at the credit worthiness of the issuers and, to your point, Dan, for risk control. So the last bit on active, you have a long-term asset allocation. You need a process that you want to follow over time. You need guideposts to check in. That's what the long-term capital market assumptions do. But at the same time, there's a lot going on in markets on a day-to-day basis. And having the ability to make an adjustment over a shorter-term time period, you know, around an election, for example, around possible volatility in commodity markets as a result of a natural disaster, or something along those lines. That's another way of having a level of active management and possibly generating some return or potentially de-risking the portfolio from time to time. And the way I always sort of describe it is you might be investing for 40, 50 years periods if you're an asset allocator, but you have your clients, your participants, they're retiring over rolling six-month, 12-month time periods. So to completely ignore what's going on in the short term, I think can lead to some tough outcomes for people. Well, Dan, Hal, thank you both for sharing your insights today. I think it's particularly clear, given the environment we're in today, that participants need help reaching their retirement goals. And there are three key steps plan sponsors can take to help them get there. It's true heading into 2018, and it was true in the years past. Encourage greater savings, make diversification easier, and employ active management, particularly where it adds value. Thank you both for joining Insights. Thank you. My pleasure. If you found our Insights today useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website, recorded on December 12, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks— The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, 
or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 2011-20355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited. ABN 551-438-32080. AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC, And J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, Distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.